Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Janet B. from New Jersey, recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Happy to be with you all on this Memorial Day night. And we are going to be talking about step seven and working primarily out of the AA 12 and 12. So on page 70, and we're just going to start with a step. It says, humbly asked him, meaning God, to remove our shortcomings. So let's talk about kind of where we're at, where we got, how we got here. We started out admitted we were powerless over food, came to believe that this power, this God could help us. And we really work through it till, till we're able to say, yes, I believe in God, however we conceive of God. And yes, I believe this God will restore me personally to sanity. Only then can we really do step three, which is we give him our lives. Just we say, God, take it all. Take my food, take my marriage, take my career, take my kid. I mean, not take them away, but take them. And I will try to live my life as best I can according to what I know to be your values. And then we spend steps four through nine cleaning up the wreckage of our past so that we can just get closer to him and of better to us. So steps four, an inventory our fears, our character defects, we list our harms. Step five, we go through it with our sponsor or someone else, generally our sponsors. And at that time, um, we've talked about the amazing promises we get at the end of step five. It says the feeling that the drink problem or for us, the food problem has disappeared will often come strongly. So by this point, we're not obsessing about food much anymore at all. Step six, we become willing to have God remove all these defects that have blocked us off from him. And step seven, we asked him to remove our shortcomings. We humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. I think they put that word there for a reason. Um, I was thinking about that today. It makes me realize, I'm not entitled to this. All these good things that God has done for me and continues to do. And we may be tempted after our fourth step, right? Like we do a bunch of work there. And our fifth step, we do a bunch of talking work there. So it's like, okay, I've worked really hard. So I'm entitled to have my defects removed. No, no, it's all gift. So I think the word humbly there reminds us, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And I looked up the word humility and one of the definitions is freedom from pride or arrogance. Freedom from pride or arrogance. So before I go into this chapter, I just wanna talk a little bit about that. If humility is the virtue or the character asset we want to practice, um, what's the defect that we need to get rid of? Um, well, the definition says pride. And I've read something that pride comes in a lot of different forms. So I'm just going to mention five because these are good things for us to look at if we're just searching for humility, if we're looking for our defects of character. So the first one is deriding, D-E-R-I-D-I-N-G with my Jersey accent. Some of you Southerners may not get what I'm saying and think I'm talking about getting on a horse. No, deriding, okay? Treating someone as unimportant 
belittling or looking down on. So it's okay to take pride in my work, but pride generally has comparison. I take pride in being smarter or richer, not just being smart, but being smarter than you. Okay. Um, so we don't do that. Deriding, that's a form of pride. Opposite, humility. The second, I thought this was interesting as a manifestation of pride, unsympathetic. Pride makes sympathy nearly impossible because if I'm full of pride and I see someone suffering, I think I'm too smart to let that happen to me. Or at the other end of the spectrum, I feel sorry for myself and my problems so much so that I can't have any sympathy for you. See, pride isn't always just thinking I'm better than you or thinking too much of myself. It's thinking of myself too much. And if I'm doing that, there's nothing left in me to be sympathetic for you. The third one we talked about last week, um, we could call it touchiness, um, the inability to overlook an offense. And a beautiful quote I read, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. And I have this touchiness because I feel I have to defend my glory or my honor. Um, my ego is too sensitive. If my ego was working properly, I would know that true glory is to let a slight or an irritation go by without paying it back. Fourth manifestation of lack of humility or pride is um, the inability to receive advice or criticism. Everything is always someone else's fault, right? It's um, having to maintain the image of myself as competent and better than others. And it inevitably leads to making terrible decisions. And the last one, again, I thought this was really interesting when I read it, but when I pondered it, it kind of made sense. Strife, where there is pride, there will be strife. Because inevitably, if I'm prideful, I'll pick a fight with someone who hurts me. I won't be able to let it go and I will cause chaos. So these things um, for sure help me see why I really need humility because on any given day, I could, have, I could be exhibiting one or all five of those character defects. So again, it's really helpful to know what to look for so we know what to ask God to remove, right? It's like when we go to a doctor, we tell the doctor, I've got a rash on my arm. Um, if, we, if we don't tell the doctor about the rash, doctor won't be able to help us. So I confess, I'm strifeful, I'm prideful, I'm overly sensitive. And in the AA 12 and 12, page 70, it says this step concerns itself with humility. So it tells us to consider what humility is and what the practice is of it can mean to us. So we just did a little bit of that. They tell us without humility, we can't stay sober or abstinent, but they go on and they say beyond that, unless we develop much more of this precious quality than may be required just for sobriety, we haven't much, much chance of being truly happy. So let's say it's like, three units of humility will get me abstinent. It'll get, I can squeak by on abstinent. 
well, who wants to spend their life abstinent, but miserable. So they're telling me I need to have four units, five units and keep, keep adding my units of humility. And they say something really interesting without humility, they cannot live to much useful purpose or in adversity, be able to summon the faith that can meet any emergency. So they're tying humility with faith. And, the, and what they're basically saying is that hard situations require more faith, right? I mean, we know that's true. If things are going well, um, don't really need you know all that much faith. But when things aren't going well, read when my kids aren't doing what I want, when my husband isn't doing what I want, when my boss isn't doing what I want, when the government isn't doing what I want, I need a little more faith to trust God, you're gonna get me through this. And they're saying that I need to have humility because without it, I won't have faith. That's interesting. They're telling me that a lack of humility gets in the way of my belief in God. But of course it does, because if I'm filled with pride, I don't really think I need God. And God doesn't impose himself on us. If I say, God, I don't need you. He's like, okay, Janet, you got this. I'll step back. The results are not pretty. So they go ahead and on page 71, they again, tell us more things to do or not do. They say certainly no alcoholic and surely no member of AA wants to deprecate material achievement. So that's number one, something we don't do. We don't go around to our friends who maybe have a really nice car and say, yeah, your values are all screwed up if you think nice cars are important. We don't do that. We may say for us, that's not our values, but we don't put down other people for their values. Number two, it says, we don't enter into debate with the many who still so passionately cling to the belief that to satisfy our basic natural desires is the main object of life. So if someone says, you know, to just satisfy my basic natural desires, to have as much sex as I want, or, you know, as much security, to be really secure, that's the whole purpose in life. We don't debate. Again, we just say to, quietly to ourselves, that path doesn't really work for me. And then it tells us that we're people who made a big mess out of trying to live by those kind of formulas. And it tells us the third thing we don't do. We don't demand more than our share of security, prestige, and romance, because that gets us into trouble. I was thinking about that today, and I was thinking, okay, how much is my share of security, prestige, and romance, right? Like, do I have to have enough security that, I don't know, I'm going to be alive tomorrow? And, and when I was thinking about it, I thought, back to that chapter about acceptance is the answer, that if I just see everything, everything as gift and that any drop of security, prestige or romance I have is gift that I'm not entitled to. Um, if I'm able to achieve that, which I have not, um, I would probably be a lot happier. And the fourth thing it says, it says, um, we drank to dream still greater dreams when we were succeeding. 
So I think the principle there to practice is we should be content. If things are going well, we're content. If they're not going well, find something to be content about, right? There's always something worse. So, and it tells us we were frustrated because never was there enough for what we thought we wanted. I, isn't that interesting what we think we want? You know, my favorite line in the book, right? Page 55, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. Isn't that what we really want? But we think we want all these other things, right? A nicer car, a promotion, um, kids that listen to us all the time. Okay, I still want that. Um, but I have to accept that I'm probably not going to get it. So they go on and tell us, okay, we're generally well-intentioned, but our crippling handicap, look at that, it cripples us, is our lack of humility. That, um, and that we, this was our problem. We failed to see that character building and spiritual values had to come first. They say that in the big book as well, right? Once the, um, it says that once we do, once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. And in one of the later chapters, and maybe the family afterwards, it talks about how spiritual growth always precedes financial security. So we are people who are to concentrate on our spiritual growth and then um, the financial security follows. A quick story for myself on that. Um, I had a job and one of, and it was in a law firm and one of the principals of the law firm, one of the groups they wanted me to join, um, it went, there was something in it that went against my moral beliefs. And I just said, I can't do it. Um, and it was hard because it was basically, a, if I don't join, I lose my job. I lost my job. Um, I got another job, but it was for $15,000 a year less. And this was a lot of years ago when $15,000 was a big chunk of change. And it was like, okay, but I kept my principles. I, you know, trying to follow a spiritual path and just about that time, I, I'm talking about like within a week, my parents decided that as part of their estate planning, they were going to gift me $1,500 a month, which came to $18,000 a year extra. So that just reinforced to me that first, my job is not, is not my source. My job is only a channel um, for God to take care of me. And God can take care of me however he wants. I'm not supposed to focus on the finance. I'm supposed to focus on him. And, and that's when things work. And they tell us that character building has to come first. On page 72, they say, yeah, we all thought good character was something we needed to do to get on with the business of being self-satisfied, right? Generally, um, I mean, if we're, we're going to be nice people at work, so we don't get fired for being nasty and hard to get along with. But what they're talking about is, let's say being honest. Eve, if our boss tells us to do something dishonest, to say, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Um, character building to come first. Character building to come befo 
before comfort. And they said, we never thought of making honesty, tolerance, and true love of man and God the daily basis of living. So that tells me as I go through the day, what am I supposed to think about? What are my values supposed to be? True love of man and God, honesty and tolerance. And it says, without these kind of values, we just had bad results. And the bad results is that we lacked a working faith, even if we believed that God existed. And that was me. I always believed in God my entire life, but it was totally irrelevant. I didn't make any decisions based on what I thought God wanted me to do, unless it was out of terror that I, if I did something wrong, three seconds after I died, he'd be waiting for me with a baseball bat to get me. But I didn't make um, pleasing God totally irrelevant to my life. So it says we could actually have earnest religious beliefs, which remained barren because we were still trying to play God ourselves, right? I, I only wanted God for emergencies. It continues, as long as we place self-reliance first, a genuine reliance upon a higher power was out of the question. Then a real interesting kind of slant on humility. It says, that basic ingredient of all humility, a desire to seek and do God's will was missing. So they're saying humility has a bunch of ingredients, right? And the basic one, so the foundational one is a desire to seek and do God's will. Of course, what does that come from? Me knowing that seeking to do my will leads to disaster, right? So I have to seek and do his will. What are other ingredients? I think um, thinking less of ourselves, right? That I'm not anything special, that other people are um, usually nicer than I am, um, all that kind of stuff, thinking less of ourselves and thinking of ourselves less, spending less time wondering where am I in the pecking order of things? It doesn't matter. It's just if I'm focused on my role, I don't have time to think about, I'm talking about my role with God, the role that God wants me to play. If I'm focused on that role, then I don't have time to focus on where I am in the pecking order with my peers. So they continue and tell us that unfortunately, they don't say unfortunately, I do. The process of gaining a new perspective is unbelievably painful, right? I always think if I were God, I would make the process of, attaining humility and all the other virtues really easy. Like we just say, I wish I was humble and nice and kind. Um, and I would just be it, you know, just like Tinkerbell waves her magic wand. But um, God says no, that, that it's painful. And actually, I don't think it's because God says no. I think it's because um, even if Tinkerbell waved her magic wand, I would say, yeah, but I want to do it my way. Wave your wand this way. You know, yeah, make me kind, but not that I have to be kind to that person who was really rotten to me first. I would have all sorts of conditions. And until we learn no conditions that we have to do it God's way, um, they say it's incredibly painful. And 
I mean, I think, right, when I came around to Overeaters Anonymous, it was because I was in pain. Um, I don't think many, if any, come around and say, you know what, life's going really well, but I think I'll work a 12-step program so I can become a better person. Um, I did it because they told me unless I became a better person, I would never be able to put down the food. So on page 73, they say, yeah, this is, this is hard. And, um, but I love this line, a whole lifetime geared to self-centeredness cannot be set in reverse all at once. Rebellion dogs are every step at first, at first, it gets easier, right? You know, just like we think about um, if you were like me and you came around and you were dishonest all the time, to be honest was really hard work. We had to monitor our speech. We had to say, wait, what I just said wasn't true. We had to work really hard at it. And then it got easier. And then we realized oh, I went a whole day without lying. Rebellion dogs are every step at first until we realized that the opposite of rebellion, surrender, is, is actually the easier, softer way. Um, page 74, it tells us that this program involves a lot of painful ego puncturing, but a lot of value comes out of it. And it, they say, until now, our lives have been largely devoted to running from pain and problems. But remember what starts happening around steps five and six, we stop running from um, the food, the pain, and we're running toward an enhanced relationship with God, a greater ability to be of use to our fellows. Um, we stop running from, we're running toward. And, but they say, yeah, we, but this is still hard. Character building through suffering might be all right for saints, but it certainly didn't appeal to us, right? Who, who wants to? I mean, if God said to me, Janet, I could make you a lot closer to me and a lot more useful, but it's going to involve some suffering. I got to be honest. I might be tempted to say, you know, God, like, I'm okay where I am. I'm okay. But he loves me too much to leave me where I am. So they say, in each case, pain had been the price of admission into a new life, but this admission price had purchased more than we expected, and we began to fear pain less and desire humility more than ever. And, you know, I used to think that the pain was things like, okay, that meant God was going to, like, give me cancer to teach me how to, you know, persevere through suffering. And, but I don't really think that's it. I think in everyday things, there is pain that's an opportunity for growth. For instance, um, I have one child now who is, um, who can cause a lot of pain for not living life the way that I think this child should live their life. Um, and it actually allows me for, it gives me a lot of opportunities for growth because I certainly have to pray more than when everything's going fine and I have to surrender. And I saw the other day when I was, um, I was sitting there like, this is just really so painful for me. And I just said, God, like, 
I need to, this is getting to be like an obsession. So just please remove these obsessive thoughts about this child and help just remove it. And, um, and he did, I mean, it was, it was like a switch was flicked and it was gone. Um, and it reminded me, Oh, Janet, like you stopped like relying on God for just kind of the everyday problems. You, you were trying to figure out all these ways to like handle this child yourself instead of going to God and saying, God, this problem has become too painful, too overwhelming for me help. So I think that the pain doesn't necessarily come from like God, you know, giving us bad things. It comes from my own defects of character, right? If I was able to a hundred percent let go of the outcomes with my kids, I wouldn't have pain in that area. So when I think of it that way, um, it's a little less scary. So when now suffering and pain are really, as the big book says, when trouble comes, use it as an opportunity um, for God to show his omniscience. It's an opportunity for me to let God show off his greatness. So they continue on page 75 to say, um, during this process of learning about humility, the most profound result of all was the change in our attitude toward God, whether we had been believers or unbelievers. And this was the change. We began to get over the idea that the higher power was a sort of Bush League pinch hitter to be called upon only in emergency. The notion that we could still live our own lives, God helping a little now and then, began to evaporate. So the God is a genie, right? Come out when I rub the lamp and then go back in the lamp when I'm done. Or God is Santa Claus to, you know, give me everything on my list. As long as I'm not too naughty, it evaporates. And it says that kind of view goes away because, and it says, refusing to place God first, we had deprived ourselves of his help. Well, how do we place God first? Remember in the big book, it says God is everything or else he is nothing. And I don't think they mean that God is everything that we're supposed to look at this water bottle and say, oh, water bottle, you are God. I believe it means we either give God everything or it's as if we give him nothing. So I can't give God my food and say, keep your hands off my marriage. You know, I can have an affair if I want. Honey, if you're listening, no intention of having an affair. It's an example. Okay. Um, you know, I can't do that. I can't tell God to just keep his hands off my job to let me, that I'll be dishonest at work. God is everything or else he's nothing. So that's how I place God first. The other ways I place God first, I have to adopt his values, honesty, tolerance, love of others, self-sacrifice for the good of other people. Um, and then it's, and then it says the words of myself, I am nothing. The father doeth the works begins to carry bright promise and meaning of myself. I'm nothing. If it were just me, I would have spent the past three days probably obsessing about my child. I gave it to God. And then I went about the business that he had me he had for me. So then a really like comforting line. We saw we needn't always be bludgeoned and beaten into humility. Thank God. 
it could come quite as much from our voluntary reaching for it as it could from unremitting suffering. A turning point in our lives came when we sought for humility as something we really wanted rather than as something we must have. Um, when I do my prayers in the morning, I usually, when I say, God, please keep me free from self-pity, dishonesty, um, self-seeking fear, resent and resentful motives and all of that, I generally add in and please help me to deflate my ego today. So I add that as just part of my morning prayers. Page 76 says, okay, as we approach the actual taking of step seven, let's look once again what our deeper motives are. We want to live at peace with ourselves. We want to live at peace with our fellows. And we want to be assured that the grace of God can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. So they're saying that should be our motives, right? Isn't it, isn't it so awesome that by this point, they don't say our objectives are to put down the alcohol, to not be obsessed with food, because that's already being taken care of for the most part, right? So it's like to live at peace with ourselves, to live at peace with our fellows, and to be assured that the grace of God can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And our character def defects get in the way of these three main life objectives. And they tell us the chief activator of our defects has been self-centered fear, primarily fear that we would lose something we already possessed or fail to get something we demanded. And I was thinking about that, like really self-centered fear. And I thought of like a big defect of mine, um, like laziness. You know, it's like, I won't do something because um, I would rather sit and read a book or relax or watch TV. And I thought, well, that kind of is fear a little bit because I'm afraid that if I go and do a task that I feel is the right thing to do, I won't have time to do what I want to do. And underneath it is the thinking that what I want to do is really what's going to make me happy. And often it's when I do the task that I don't want to do that does end up making me happier. But an interesting thing to think about, the, at the root of everything is self-centeredness and fear. Those two things, self-centeredness and fear. And it says, of course, when we live on a basis of unsatisfied demands, we're in a state of continual disturbance and frustration. And we'll have no peace unless we find a way to reduce these demands. And they say, we can have a simple request, right? When I was single, I wanted to be married, right? It was like, God, I would love to, you know, find a nice man to marry. But um, I had to work on not having it a demand. Like, God, I'm doing everything you want. You owe me a husband or children or anything to realize I may have a desire for something. God owes me nothing. It's all gift. And they conclude by saying that the whole emphasis of step seven is on humility. And we should try to have the same kind of humility in getting rid of our defects as we did 
when we were trying to stop eating compulsively, right? I mean, look at, at that point, we went to another person who we may have barely known and generally said some form of, I will do whatever you tell me because I have no answers. That's the kind of humility that we had on step one. And they said, that's the kind of humility we should work for, for everything. And they say, if that degree of humility could enable us to find the grace by which such a deadly obsession, alcohol or food could be banished, then there must be hope of the same result respecting any other problem we could possibly have. Grace, unmerited favor, God coming in and doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So by this time, hopefully we've done our fourth step, our fifth step, done a little work on six and seven on a practical basis. Um, we generally have a list of our defects, a list of the opposites, and then we pray. Um, we're back in the big book now, page 76. It says, when ready, we're ready to have God remove all our defects. We say something like this. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. My creator, remember we talked at the beginning, we, need to, we are people who need to be recreated, not just get a little better, recreated. My creator, I'm willing you should have all of me, good and bad, trusting that God loves me, my good and my bad. He knows my bad. I give it all to him. I pray you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows, um, which is really all of them, right? All of them stand in the way. I'm giving them all to God, but he decides what he's gonna remove when. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding, amen. We have then completed step seven. I've done my, my part, right? Inventoried my defects, shared them with another person and prayed for God to remove them. And then once I do that, I trust that God will remove them. And then I move on to step eight and nine, making amends, which we will talk about on Thursday. So that is all I have. Thanks.